It's a blustery day in the summer of 1987 in Bratislava, a picture book city in eastern Czechoslovakia. A man in his 40s, dark hair, thick mustache, ducks into a car outside Kuba Technica, the trade consulting firm he runs. Or at least that's his story. The truth is, Florentino Aspiaga doesn't know much about moving goods from his native Cuba to the rest of the world, but he does know how to move information. Aspiaga is one of Cuba's highest-ranking spies. He's been Fidel Castro's man in Moscow, Angola, and Nicaragua. Now he's the head of the Cuban General Directorate of Intelligence for all of Eastern Europe, and he's good at what he does. Two years ago, he was named Cuba's Intelligence Officer of the Year. He's handsome and charming, and people like to tell him things. Aspiaga drives 50 miles east, from Bratislava to Vienna. The evening sky is clear when he arrives there. He walks briskly to an ornate iron gate and looks up to see an imposing circular window on the facade of a spotless white brick building. He's memorized the address, Boltzmann-Gasse 16. It's a Saturday. The American embassy is closed. But Aspiaga has no trouble getting the attention of the guard on duty. He explains that he's a case officer from Cuban intelligence, a commander, someone high up. He's not the first spy to have done this. Aspiaga is what's called a walk-in, a spy who arrives unannounced at the intelligence operation of another country, hoping to defect. Once inside, he tells the agents he wants to defect, and he tells them he has something valuable to share. So they put him on a plane to a debriefing center in Germany. The agents there are skeptical, so they ask Aspiaga to tell them everything he can about Cuba's intelligence program. He does them one better. He says he knows a lot more than the agents do about the CIA's own network of spies in Cuba. He names one of the CIA operatives who's working undercover in Havana. He's a double agent, Aspiaga says. He works for us. And the guy you recruited on the ship in Antwerp, the little fat guy with the mustache, he's a double too. Aspiaga goes on to name dozens of CIA spies, and not just their names, but details of their personal lives, how they were recruited, where they were placed. It turns out the agency's super-secret spies weren't so secret after all. And that's not the worst part. For years, these double agents have been feeding the Americans Cuban-concocted lies. Every piece of information they provided to the CIA was planted by Fidel Castro himself. The CIA agents are shocked by what Aspiaga is telling them. They cannot believe they were duped. And not just by a single double agent one time, the CIA's entire network in Cuba is a sham. So what happened? How could the most sophisticated intelligence service in the world have been played so badly by an aging dictator on a tiny island? Was it a failure of strategy or technology or maybe bureaucracy? Or was it something more deeply human, something all of us share when it comes to people we don't know? That's what we'll be talking about with our very own Next Big Idea curator, Malcolm Gladwell, author of the best-selling new book, Talking to Strangers. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. 
From Wondery, I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. I founded The Next Big Idea Club, along with authors Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Cain, Daniel Pink, and Adam Grant, to connect people to some of the boldest new thinking shaping our culture and our future. Each week on the podcast, we bring you one idea with the power to change the way you see the world. This week, why we are too trusting when it comes to other people. The story about Florentino Aspiaga, the Cuban defector, is from Talking to Strangers, the new book from our Next Big Idea Club co-curator Malcolm Gladwell. Malcolm says Cuba's decades-long deception isn't just interesting as a real-life spy thriller. It's also a perfect illustration of how bad we human beings are at understanding people who are different from us. Malcolm has been helping us make sense of human behavior for years in his articles in The New Yorker and his best-selling books like The Tipping Point, Blink, and Outliers. I listened to the Talking to Strangers audiobook while I was hiking the Appalachian Trail. Talk about changing the way you see the world. I've got Malcolm in my earbuds and I keep meeting fellow hikers, all perfect strangers, and for maybe the first time in my life, I'm really thinking about the way I form impressions of people I don't know what I can glean from quick interactions or think I can. And I have to say, I always thought I was pretty good at reading people. But talking to strangers has forced me to rethink that. We got hold of Malcolm between stops on his book tour. Joining conference now. Hello, Rufus. Hello, Malcolm. Ready when you guys are. Great. So just for fun, can we start with the extraordinary story of Fidel Castro and how he toyed with the CIA for a generation. We have this Cuban spy, right, who walks into the U.S. embassy in Vienna and just drops this bomb. Castro had, over the course of more than a decade, completely pulled the wool over the eyes of the CIA, not just in a minor way, but in an overwhelming, catastrophic way. He had deceived everyone about everything. And I just think that's this fantastic introduction to this to this question of, you think you understand the stranger? No. Like, not even the most sophisticated intelligence <laughs> service in the entire world understands strangers. Well, and the, the detail that I love is that Castro and Cuban intelligence makes a documentary film, right, from multiple camera angles of all these CIA agents executing their work, being duped. And then finally, when the Americans ask, hey, could we get a copy of this film? They send it over right away, dubbed in English. (laughs) It's like, yeah, so they're following, they have so completely pulled the wool over the American eyes that they are, they have camera crews following CIA officers around when they meet with their agents and they're filming it like with great sound and like two camera angles. And they make a kind of private documentary, which is this, you know, I don't know how long it was, but this kind of complete and utter humiliation of the Americans. And then, and then when the Americans find out that they've been duped, the, yeah, the Cubans send them a copy as a kind of final screw you. <laughs> Dubbed in English, yes. <laughs> which is this great detail. But of course, the extraordinary point here is that it was not, in fact, brilliant tradecraft, right? It wasn't that these Cuban spies were so impeccable with their work that caused them to be so effective, right? As someone who devours huge numbers of spy thrillers, the central theme of spy thrillers is almost always that the 
spying works because of the brilliance of the spy. So spies are celebrated. They're, you know, the secret agent is alleged to be smarter and more daring and more duplicitous and whatever than the, than the rest of us. He's James Bond, right? He's, in fact, when you look at these actual real-life cases of spies, spies work not because spies are good, but because the people being spied on are human and they are inherently gullible. And this is the first big argument Malcolm makes. It's drawn from the work of a psychologist named Tim Levine, and the idea is devastating, but also pretty obvious. As human beings, we are built to believe. We will always, unless we are given some powerful reason not to, our default mode is to accept what the stranger says as true. And it is that tendency that makes us, inherent tendency that makes us, extraordinarily susceptible to deception. I I tell another story of a a very, very, very damaging spy, Anna Montez. She probably betrayed as as many American secrets as anyone in the Cold War era. But she was someone who rose to the very highest level of the DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, the whole time working for Fidel Castro. And I tell the story of how she was at first suspected, then cleared, and then finally uncovered. And that is not about her brilliance. She was, she had the, she had the codes that she used to communicate with her Cuban handlers in her purse. She had her, <laughs> she had her radio in a shoebox in her closet. That's amazing. She's about yeah. far from, she's like an amateur hour. Another high ranking person at DIA is convinced she's a Cuban spy and can't convince anyone. She, and she sails through the examination. Why? Once again, it is because, not because of extraordinary brilliance on her part or incompetence on the part of her investigators, but because of this foundational fact of human nature, which is that we're programmed to believe. I remember being told in grade school that gullible was not in the dictionary. And for two or three seconds, I believed this to be true until I realized I was being made fun of. (laughs) (laughs) But that's been a very effective ploy for many generations, I think, for just this reason. And so Tim Levine, his research is fascinating. Yeah, there's a very large group of psychologists around the world who study deception and who have been puzzling with for years about why we're bad at knowing when we're being lied to. And, you know, this has been studied a thousand times. And then Every time you study it, and you can study it any way you want, humans basically are slightly better than chance, knowing whether we're being deceived. Levine, I think, has the best explanation. There's many explanations for this. His explanation is, suppose I have a 100 videotapes of people making a statement, and in half of those cases, they're telling a lie, and in half of those cases, they're telling the truth. And I ask you, Rufus, watch all 100 and identify the liars and the truth tellers you will almost certainly get about 52% of the answers right. Just sure. better than chance. It doesn't matter who you look at with very, very few exceptions. We're right around uh, low 50s, just above chance. And he looks at this very closely, and what he discovers is that it's not because we're wildly guessing we don't know what's going on, and we're kind of all over the map, and that's what it is. No, it's because we are overwhelmingly guessing that the person who is speaking is telling the truth. It's really, really hard for us to conclude that someone's lying. So we're guessing true, 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 true. And so we're getting all of the true ones right, and we're getting all the liars wrong because we're biased to truth, to believe in what people are saying. Which isn't altogether a bad thing. 
Tim Levine, the psychologist, says gullibility is the foundation for a healthy, functioning civil society. We need to have a baseline assumption that the person we're talking to is telling the truth. You can't communicate efficiently. You can't create any kinds of organizations. You can't do any kind of meaningful transactions. Everything crumbles. And so it would make sense that over the course of human history, evolution would have favored, in a sense, the gullible. I mean, think about how what your life looks like if you don't default to truth. You don't put your kids on the bus in the morning to go to school sure, because you're convinced that the bus driver is a, or that you don't believe that they're actually going to school. How, how do you know? They could be taking the kids to some other place and doing all kinds of nefarious things to them. You don't. When the doctor says, when the dentist says you have cavities, you're like, I don't know. Show me. I don't know. You, you know, and so all of a sudden, a 20-minute visit to the dentist becomes a three-hour argument. I mean, I could go on. Nothing works if you don't have this fundamental belief in the truth of what's being said to you. And Levine's point is that that is what makes civil society possible, but it also means that we will occasionally be deceived. And it doesn't happen a lot because most people are not liars, but it, it's why once in a generation there is a Madoff, a Bernie Madoff who comes along and cheats people out of their money, or once in a generation sure. there is a Anna Montez, a spy in the upper levels of the DIA who betrays all of our secrets. Liars and crooks and cheats prey on the fact that we default to truth. It's how they sneak by even when we're suspicious that something is off. But at what point do we start taking our suspicions seriously? Levine makes the point that for us to overcome our default to truth, doubts have to reach a critical, a a very high threshold. In other words, it is not the presence of doubt that causes you to become skeptical. Usually what happens when you have doubts is you just push them away. Doubts have to accumulate to a point where you simply can no longer find any conceivable reason to excuse them. Yeah, you say at one point in the book that our lie detectors are set in the off position. Another adjustment to that might be our lie detectors are set in the incredibly insensitive (laughs) position. Like there has to be this overwhelming. Yeah, it's it's like, yeah, it takes a lot to move us out of that mode. Unless you're Harry Markopoulos. Harry Markopoulos. You might not remember him, but he's the guy who tried to blow the whistle on Bernie Madoff. Every year for 10 years, he went to the Securities and Exchange Commission and gave them evidence that Madoff was a fraud, even though no one was listening. For some whatever reason, he is like the little outlier who is one of those rare group of people whose lie detector is not set to the opposition. He does not default to truth. The more you learn about Harry Markopoulos, one, you learn... These people are kinds of people are useful. I call them holy fools. They're really useful. Sure. They're the kid who looks at the emperor and says he's not wearing any clothes, right? They're capable of seeing things the rest of us can't. But at the same time, Harry Markopoulos is a, he's a little bit crazy. <laughs> he, he becomes convinced by the end of the, of the Madoff scandal. First, he thinks that Madoff's going to kill him. He's going to send Russian hitmen after him. And then after Madoff's arrested, he's convinced that the SEC is going to kill him. And he barricades himself in this mansion in the Boston suburbs, puts on a gas mask and like loads up his rifles and like stays up all night with his shotgun chained to the door. The idea that the SEC would send a squad is the product of a exceedingly hyperactive paranoid fantasy. But the point is that that's of a piece. That's what it's like to be someone who does not default to truth. You don't want to live in a society full of Harry Markopoulos's. 
right? It doesn't work. You can't have Harry Markopoulos run the SEC. The SEC cannot be an organization that assumes that absolutely everyone doing something a little bit unusual is a crook. That's disastrous. Wall Street would come to a, a shuddering halt if every single transaction was considered suspicious. And yet that's exactly what Harry Markopoulos is. He's someone for whom the world is a overwhelmingly suspicious place. I do take away from it a desire to be able to switch my, to turn my lie detector on and off. <laughs> you know, I wonder to what degree that's something an individual can modulate. In certain contexts, I do think we're quicker to reach that threshold of doubt. Email would be a good one. You get an email, you know, from a Ukrainian or Kazakhstanian uh, email address, you know, promising you great wealth if you click on a link. You know, few of us are default to truth under those circumstances anymore. So, sure. But I think, I don't know whether under most reasonable situations, this is something we can just kind of casually flip on and off. I think it's either on or it's off. The whole point of this is, it's not that there's a better way to do this. It is the best way to do this is to default to truth. Rufus, think about this. You are someone who has, you are a serial entrepreneur who has successfully created a series of, of successful organizations from scratch, right? You could not do that if you were not fundamentally someone who was trusting. Yes, yes. It would be impossible. <laughs> like, so why would you want to mess with this? There's no question that entrepreneurs are the extreme of defaulting to truth and not reading the danger signs. But I do wonder, though, whether, I mean, we're grateful for Harry Markopoulos. And I, I do wonder if one of the conclusions isn't that we should cultivate or at least, you know, deploy a small quantity of Markopoulos's in the right areas of our lives to make sure that we don't have massive $50 billion Ponzi schemes. Well, I would put it another way. I would rather that we make adjustments to our social institutions so that we aren't relying on the Markopolises. So if people were exercised some common sense, we wouldn't need Harry Markopolis to sniff out Bernie Madoff. The problem is social institutions are run by people. And those people often need to deal with and make sense of strangers. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Thursdays are busy in Judge Solomon's courtroom in New York. Dozens of people gathered in a single noisy room, a middle-aged man whose face is twisted in a scowl. Kids talking loudly on their cell phones, defiant of authority. A woman with a distant, glassy look. They're all here because they're suspected of crimes. From his bench, Judge Solomon watches them file by. He gets to choose whether to lock them up or let them go. He has their rap sheets in front of him, along with a statement from the defense and another from the district attorney. He also has something else, his eyes. Eyes that have seen a lot over the years and that help him decide if the strangers in front of him deserve their freedom. Here's Malcolm Gladwell. 
one of the most important things judges do is decide whether to grant bail or not. And so if I do a simple bake-off between a machine learning algorithm and a human judge, and I give them both the same information on the defendant, but in the case of the judge, the judge also gets to meet the defendant. So we both get the case file, and the judge gets on top of the case file a personal encounter with the defendant. So who does a better job? You may have guessed the answer. It's the algorithm, the computer. It's not even close. In fact, seeing the person isn't just unhelpful, it actually makes you do worse, even for someone as wise and experienced as Judge Solomon. I was very surprised by the studies around how ineffective we are at reading each other. I had always assumed that facial expressions were a kind of involuntary language through which we revealed ourselves, often against our wishes. But it turns out that we're, we're not very good at reading that language. Yes, there's a couple of things that are going on here. One is, so we do have, we have a baseline assumption that we are, that we externally manifest internal states, that if you feel happy on the inside, you will show happiness on the outside. And this is a powerful idea that most of us carry around. I think that becomes particularly important when we're dealing with people we don't know. And we have that idea in part because that's the way literature and television and acting works. Malcolm has a wonderful chapter in Talking to Strangers where he analyzes the facial expressions of actors on an episode of the sitcom Friends. And in every case when a character experiences an emotion, it registers perfectly on their face. When Joey is mad, Joey's face looks mad. When Ross is surprised, Ross's jaw drops and his eyes go wide. When, you know, I could go on, when, when Phoebe is perplexed, her brow furrows. I mean... But in real life, that's not the way it works. We think it does. But there's this lovely experiment where these German psychologists created the most surprising situation imaginable. So they had people come in, down a long hallway, sit in a room, you know, read some Kafka, answer questions on it. And then they say, oh, you're done. You can leave now. And they open the door and they think they're going to go back down the long hallway. And while they're doing the test, the hallway has been transformed into a big room with red painted walls. And the experimenters have found their best friend, put their best friend sitting in a chair in the middle of the room with a light bulb above their head, staring intently, right? So they come out of doing this. <laughs> I love this. They yeah. open the door and they see like this thing that they would never in a million years have expected. So after this experience, the experimenter sits the person down. They say, okay, were you surprised to see your best friend staring at you sitting in a chair in this big red room? And they're like, oh my God, totally overwhelmingly surprised. And then they say, okay, what do you think your face looked like when you opened the door and saw this bizarre, unexpected event? And they said, well, I, I assumed that my jaw dropped and my eyes went wide and my eyebrows raised and, you know, I, I looked like I was in shock. But when you actually look at videotapes of the people's faces when they are confronted with this surprising event, almost none of them show any stereotypical signs of surprise. A couple of them have little bits and pieces of that expression, but they feel surprised in their heart. It does not register on their face. So the idea that you can use someone's expressions as a reliable guide to their inner state is not true. And I think that is a powerful source of miscommunication between strangers. We yeah. are carrying this assumption into our interactions with others, and it just is not holding up. Now, occasionally, this inability to read faces can work to your advantage for example, in this extraordinary case of your father actually coming out 
naked, I believe, and confronting an intruder. (laughs) So this happened, right? And and he's terrified, but the intruder does not see fear in his face. Famous story. Funny in retrospect. Horrifying at the time. My parents are on vacation and my father's taking a shower and he hears my mother scream. He comes out of the, runs out of the shower naked, dripping. He's like 75 years old. And he sees my, a man with a knife to my mother's throat. And my father points at him and says, get out now. And the man runs away. And my father was someone who, my father's mismatched, mismatched people are people whose facial expressions are at odds with their internal state. So there are some people who look happy when they're happy and sad when they're sad, but lots of other people who don't. My father was in the latter category. And if you knew my father well, you would know that he never showed fear on his face. He just didn't. It just not wasn't part of his emotional repertoire. So he would have looked this guy, this like, you know, 20 year old guy with a knife on mom's throat, sees this Englishman sitting wet, <laughs> pointing at him with a face that does not portray a modicum Time, we'll send you a free copy of Malcolm's book just for joining. Go to nextbigideaclub.com slash podcast. Promo code strangers. That's nextbigideaclub.com slash podcast promo code strangers. Her life was in someone else's hands, but it would never have shown up on his face. And that's just a kind of incredible, powerful lesson about how dangerous it is to jump to conclusions about people based on their affect. And as I was thinking about this, I remembered an article I read in The New Yorker years ago, and I looked it up this morning, and it was written by you in 2002. Do you remember this? It was The Naked Face, an article in The New Yorker, that describes Ekman and Friesen, these two guys who first developed this whole facial action coding. And they suggested that there's some experts, there's some people who can be very perceptive at reading these incredibly subtle cues, but it seems that most of us don't have that gift. But what's interesting, the key point is that It's not that it's never the case that expressions match internal states. It's that it is unpredictably the case. So this is Levine's big point is that sometimes there are people out there who do represent their emotions faithfully on their face. And he calls those people matched senders. So the Mm -hmm, matched people are the ones we know when they're lying. We know when they're happy. We know they're really easy. And if you have a matched sender who's being interrogated by the cops, The cops get them right every time. They know when that person's lying. Levine's big point is that that's only a portion of the population, that a significant portion of the population does not play by those rules for whatever, you know, hardwired reasons. That's just not the way their faces work. And this belief that is true with some is not true with all. And those cases where it's not true are the ones that get us in trouble. So we default to truth, which is dangerous. And people aren't as transparent as we think they are, which is also dangerous. But defaulting to truth means things, for the most part, run pretty smoothly. And knowing that other people aren't as transparent as we think they are gives us the power to adjust our expectations and come up with some workarounds. But we still have some challenges when it comes to how we talk to strangers. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. 
I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. Hello, ma'am. Hi. Uh, it takes time, I'm told the reason for your stop is you didn't fail. You failed to signal your lane change. You got your driver's license insurance with you? Sandra Bland and Brian Insinia come face to face during a particularly difficult moment in modern American history. The public is reckoning with high profile cases of police violence against black people. Michael Brown has been shot by police in Ferguson, Missouri, after allegedly shoplifting from a convenience store. Freddie Gray has died in Baltimore after being arrested for carrying a pocket knife. Eric Garner has been choked to death after police in New York arrested him for illegally selling cigarettes. Oh, you seem very irritated. I am. I, I really am. I was getting out of your way. You were speeding up, tailing me. So I move over and you stop me. So, yeah, I am a little irritated, but that doesn't stop you from giving me a ticket. So, Are you done? Land, a young African American woman, has recently moved to Texas from her home state of Illinois. As an undergrad, she was a member of the Sigma Gamma Rho sorority, volunteered at an old folks' home, and played in the marching band. She's still popular. She has a following on YouTube. Car door. You just I'm opened my car door, so you're going to get threatened to drag me out of my own car. Get out of the car! And then you're going to stop me? I will light me? you up. Get out! Wow. Get out of the car! For a failure to signal. You're doing all of this for Get over there! Right, yeah. Yeah, let's take this to court. You probably know how this ends up. Officer Insinia drags her out of the car, arrests her, and takes her to jail. Three days later, she's found hanging dead in her cell. The story of Sandra Bland, there's something that drew you to this story, and you are nothing if not a connoisseur of important stories. What is it about her story that made it so central to this broader enterprise? Because it's so heartbreaking and stupid and tragic, and and because... It was all captured on videotape, and so we have every single word of the interaction between the police officer, Brian Insinia, and Sandra Bland. We can hear just how kind of maddeningly stupid this very word and tragic it is. And it speaks to Malcolm's point about how bad we are at reading each other. But it also speaks to something else, which doesn't seem just counterintuitive. It seems somehow unfair. I feel like we underestimate the importance of the environment in modifying or shaping or even driving the behavior of the person that we're trying to make sense of. This is called coupling, tying a behavior to a place. And Malcolm says it has a positive side. Change the environment and you may be able to change the behavior. He gives an example in his book about the Golden Gate Bridge. It's a magnet for tourists, but it's also, unfortunately, a popular place for suicides. For years, desperate people have gone with alarming regularity to take their lives there. More than 1,500 people have been successful since it opened in 1937. But here's the twist. 
Overwhelmingly, the people who want to jump off the Golden Gate Bridge at any given moment only want to jump at that given moment. Their suicide is coupled with the Golden Gate Bridge. And if they're restrained, or if a suicide barrier is erected, as it was in 2018, they won't do it at all. They won't try to kill themselves in any other way. So what does coupling have to do with our interactions with strangers? Malcolm says, think about crime. Imagine if if I were to, you're chief of police in New York City. I can give you two kinds of information in order to allow you to predict crimes. I can tell you who has predicted crimes in the past, or I can tell you the location of where crimes in New York have been committed in the past. Which of those two data sets do you think would be more useful in preventing crimes in the future? And, you know, intuitively would say, well, I'd like to know who the criminals are. Wrong. Not just mildly wrong, massively wrong. If you want to know, make an accurate prediction about what crime is going to be committed in the future, the best thing you can know is the location of crimes committed in the past. Crime is coupled to place, and place is the most powerful driver of criminality. This idea was tested by a criminologist named David Weisberg. His rule is that less than 5% of the street segment, the street segment is one side of a city block, less than 5% of the street segments in any urban area reliably produce greater than 50% of the crime in a given year. And that is true of any urban area you can find. So if all you do as a police force is police, 5% of the streets that historically account for most of the crimes, you will in fact do an incredibly effective job of controlling crime in your community, which is such a mind-blowing notion, but that is what he is, I think, he and the group of people of criminology has been working with, that is the overwhelming conclusion of their work. And that idea, so we think, to make sense of the stranger criminal, I need to know something about the criminal personally. Wrong. To make sense of the stranger, I need to know where he lives. Which doesn't just seem counterintuitive, it seems somehow unfair. The whole thing is so weird and fascinating and completely unexpected. Mm. But you can see why, in a context of when we're trying to describe why human beings are bad at this job of making sense of strangers, that this would be a huge consideration. Because we're looking for a solution to our problem. How do I make sense of this stranger? In the wrong place, right? It's not, the stranger's not going to tell you, but his driver's lenses will tell you, right? Weisberg tested his idea in Kansas City, and it was a huge success. But Malcolm believes its success was fatal in Sandra Bland's case because it uncoupled something crucial. The idea of aggressive, proactive policing is not wrong. If you want to do stop and frisk, there's a real argument for doing stop and frisk, but only in that tiny fraction of street segments where all the crime is. So they're saying, yes, have proactive policing. Yes, flood the zone with cops. Yes, have cops who are suspicious and willing to stop people and who are going after guns. But that only makes sense on these tiny fraction of streets where the level of criminality may be 50 or 100 times higher than the norm. It makes no sense anywhere else. And what has happened in American policing in the last generation or so is that we are using the right strategy in the wrong places. We're taking a strategy which makes perfect sense on the 5% of problematic streets, and we're using it everywhere else where it makes no sense whatsoever. You want the cop who gives you the benefit of the doubt, because 
99% of interactions between police officers and civilians are, in fact, harmless, yeah. right? There's just no reason for us to turn these ordinary encounters into occasions for um, all manner of, of overreaction and, and hysteria. And that is exactly what happens in the case of Standard Plan. And so what are the conclusions that you come to? I think that uh, clearly just a greater degree of humility and respect for the stranger, for the otherness of the stranger and the, the challenge of understanding the stranger is a clear conclusion. Where else do you find yourself landing when you think about how should this impact all of our behavior? Well, I talk about caution and humility. So we also need to kind of revise our expectations about what we can learn from strangers. You can't find out what everything you need to know in any kind of initial encounter. It results in innocent people getting accused of crimes, of fatal misunderstandings that lead to wars. And in the particular example of the case that inspired this book, the, the case of Sandra Bland, it set in motion a chain of circumstances that took a, a completely innocent woman and landed her in prison and then contributed to her own decision to take her own life. Uh, so these are not academic issues. They're issues that make a tremendous difference in the way we conduct ourselves in the world. I'm brought back to the very beginning of the book where you have this charming little author's note and you talk about your father who clearly delights in talking to strangers and this little bit of mischief you played in, in, in putting him at the fancy Mercer Hotel in Soho in New York City. And it's such a charming story because clearly your father loves nothing more than talking to a complete stranger for hours about gardening. But I wonder whether, do you share this delight in talking to strangers that your father had? Because it's a funny opening to a book that is encouraging caution. The reason the story is told is my father was content, quite happy talking to a stranger without finding out the slightest, without he didn't need to, like, he talks to this person who's clearly a massive celebrity because the entire time they're talking, people are coming up and asking for autographs and taking pictures. It never occurs to my father to figure out who the person was. He was quite content in just having a conversation. He just wanted to have a conversation about gardening. And it's that restraint that I like. I think that we're driven sometimes to a ridiculous extent by our desire to know as much as we can about the stranger because we think they'll no, hand. No. I'm glad about sure. And my dad is a good example of someone who's like, I can't discover who this person really is in the one hour we're going to be sitting here talking. What I can do is have a great conversation about gardening, and that's all I'm going to try and do. And so I started with that because it's a beautiful example of the kind of restraint that I wish that we practice more often in our interactions with those we don't know. If you have thoughts about Talking to Strangers or other books in this series, we'd love you to join the conversation at nextbigideaclub.com. You can subscribe to the club in the podcast and receive a free copy of Malcolm's book. Podcast listeners get an additional 10% off with the promo code PODCAST. If you're listening on a smartphone, tap or swipe over the cover art of this podcast. You'll find the episode notes and a link to the Next Big Idea Club. A special thanks today to Malcolm Gladwell. His book, Talking to Strangers, is available wherever books are sold. You've been listening to The Next Big Idea. I'm your host, Rufus Griscom. This episode was written by Alex Kratoski. Our senior producer is Jonathan Miller. Associate producer is Caleb Bissinger. Sound designed by Jake Korski. The Next Big Idea is produced by Emma Cortland and Michael Kobnott. 
Executive producers are Stephanie Jens, Marshall Louie, and Hernan Lopez for Wondery. 